Hey, hey, Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the show and a happy, happy Monday to you all. What an episode we have got to kick this week off for you. So today on the show, we are joined by Frank Turner. Frank is an English punk and folk singer. Frank has released eight solo albums and is the winner of multiple highly notable music awards, such as the Kerrang! and AIM Awards. As far as I know, I think that Frank is actually the first musician that we have interviewed. And take my word for it, guys, this interview does not disappoint. So one of the reasons why we wanted to get Frank on the show is Frank has created a real incredible listenership. And one of the most amazing things that we admire Frank for is how he has used his platform to tackle major issues which are so, so prominent in today's society. So just looking at Frank's career, Frank has played over 2,400 2,400 live shows. He's visited 48 countries in the process. So you could definitely say that that Frank is noted for his work ethic. He's also noted for the meaning that drives a lot of his songs. So Frank is also an author. He studied at the London School of Economics. And when he was at Eton, he also studied alongside Prince William. Not bad. (laughs) So we sat down with Frank today to discuss major, major aspects of his journey. We go over things like Frank's career start, his work ethic. How do you deal with getting 100 threats per day, 100 death threats per day, mastering your craft, mental health. We delve into things like Frank's experiences with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and much, much more. So guys, before we start this interview, I just want to give a quick heads up that obviously Frank is a very renowned name and it is fairly difficult to get an interview with people of this stature. So at the time of this recording, Frank was on tour in America. He was playing live shows. So when we contacted him to do the interview, I think he was about 30 minutes or an hour away from doing a sound check before he went live. So about halfway through this interview, you will hear live music and we apologize, but obviously we just hope that the content can make up for it. So guys, if you enjoyed this podcast and you like our work, then please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps us so much with the visibility of the show. So, guys, let's do it. Without any further ado, Frank Turner, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. Amazing. So, a place in which we would love to start is, let's delve back into the start of your career. So, I was watching the speech which you gave at the Oxford Student Union, Mm. and you said that your interests by nature tend to be very participatory. 
So you give the example that as soon as you were, quote-unquote, blown away by rock and roll, you immediately started pestering your parents for an electric guitar, like any yeah. good kid would do. Yeah. So do you think that this idea of following what you were passionate about and what captivated you, do you think that ultimately that's led you to where you are today and finding that creative calling? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's slightly chicken and egg, really. And one could almost make the argument that they're kind of the same thing, just in the sense that, um, you know, I I found this thing that I loved. And um, I I guess what I was trying to say with that comment is that um, I find it just in terms of my character, my upbringing, my education, I don't really know, but I just find it difficult to fall in love with something without then immediately wanting to participate in it and try my hand at it. And the thing is, sometimes that doesn't really work for me. You know, there's definitely um, uh, like I can't draw to save my life. Um, for example. Uh, uh, so, you know, there have been times when I've seen kind of artwork that I really liked and I've tried my hand at it and realized that it's not for me. But it so happened that, um, first of all, rock and roll music was the thing I fell the most in love with. And secondly, I'm not saying that I was um, brilliant the minute I picked up a guitar, but sort of straight away there was some aptitude for it, I guess. So, uh, yeah, there, it's it's very much that's just how I sort of approach the world, really. Amazing. So at what age would you say was like was there like a turning point when you thought wow you know like i want to do this full time that's a difficult question for me because like i mean you know when i was a kid and when i first started playing guitar and then me and my next door neighbor formed the band when we were like 11 uh and like we played a grand total of two shows both of which were our mates birthday parties um you know we dreamed of being acdc or nirvana or whatever but it was obviously a ridiculous uh adolescent almost pre-adolescent dream and then um but you know i I mean the idea of having my life revolving around music was right there right back then um at what point it sort of became a realistic ambition is a is a more complicated question um my route sort of in forward in terms of doing this um professionally i was very fortunate to grow up um and be involved in the uk hardcore punk scene in the 90s and what was cool about that was it was um by design a very kind of participatory, very DIY, low barriers to entry kind of scene. You just showed up and you were part of it. And, you know, it was very small and I was putting on shows and I was playing shows and I put out a zine and all this kind of thing in very short order. Um, And somewhere in the middle of that, um, I guess the idea of actual practical adult ways of doing this full time became more apparent but in, in a way you could say the desire to do this for to make this my life was there right from the word go what were your family like in this process were they always supportive or did they want you to follow <laughs> maybe a more uh traditional approach they, they were I, I i don't want to like sell my mum in particular down the river but like my family were not supportive at all um my parents are let's say kind of traditionalist um one might even say small c conservative um and uh they don't know my parents don't listen to any kind of rock and roll music and they don't know anybody involved in that world and at the beginning i think it was kind of like an oddity that i'd got into that they sort of tolerated much as i've been into games workshop prior to that um but um you know once i started kind of going to a lot of shows i had a very weird moment in my teenagers because i was straight edge for a few years so like you know not drinking or taking drugs and all that kind of thing and it was at the time in my life when all of my friends were kind of teenagers getting drunk at parties and it was funny because um all my friends their parents were trying to stop them drinking and my parents were trying to make me drink because they thought that i joined a cult so uh <laughs> you know they'd be like pushing me beers at, uh, at, like we're talking about oh, i'm like 17 18 here or whatever so i mean they weren't 
supportive of it. I certainly think they thought they thought or maybe even hoped it was a phase for a long time. And um, uh, in particular, like when Million Dead, my first touring band broke up, I think that my mum sort of breathed a sigh of relief and thought, well, that's that done with now. And he was going to go off and get a normal job. And I didn't. And I started touring solo. And I think she was quite um, worried and upset at that moment in time. But it's because what I was doing was so outside of her experience. You know, I mean, she just had she had no points of reference for it at all. And she has now conceded that I have a real job. <laughs> Amazing. And I can definitely relate to that. You know, when I tell my parents that I'm following the path of entrepreneurship, it's quite difficult for them to understand because back in the day, it just wasn't something right. which was just, a, as you said, a major point of reference. Exactly. And it's like and it's not their their intentions are not um, they're not being uh negative necessarily within their own terms of reference do you know what i mean they're trying to wish for the best for their kids or at least in my case i think that's true but it's just that they their imagination didn't stretch to the idea of me being a professional musician exactly exactly so what exactly was it specifically that gave you that conviction that you know i mean to even i, I know what it's like to to follow a different path and what your family specifically wants you know i know that that's difficult what was it that gave you that conviction that said you know i'm gonna follow this um well uh there are two angles on that i mean one of them is that um it's it's a funny thing in a way that i think is actually quite uh wholesome i find it quite difficult to explain what drives me on some levels do you know what i mean um like you know when i was playing in punk bands when i started out it was just you know i was getting to grips with writing music and being in a band and i just loved it and i felt like i had a lot to say so i just charged on probably the most kind of um dramatic part of this which again it feels quite integral to me in quite a nice way is that when million dead my old band broke up and i started playing solo shows that was absolutely like it was an insane decision from a commercial point of view uh, and from a career point of view you know i sort of made a very tiny name for myself in a punk band and i started playing folk music and everyone thought i'd lost my mind but i just did it because it felt like the right thing to do and like i felt like i had something to say and the songs were coming and i was I, like I say, it's it's difficult to verbalize in a way, but I just felt like it was the right thing for me to be doing. The other thing to mention in all of this is just that, um, you know, uh, I really um, the world in which I was raised in terms of my parents values and the fact that my parents put me up for a scholarship to a boarding school when I was a kid, which I got um, and I hated it. Um, and I hated the social mores and the social values and the politics and the ethics that were sort of implicit in that world. And um uh, an awful lot of my choices in terms of career path and all that kind of thing were driven by a pretty furious rejection of that world that was presented to me when I was a kid. It just didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel like a world I wanted to be part of. Do you think there's any room for forward thinking in following your passions, especially in sort of an industry like yours, using the words like career and things? I imagine that logistical thinking isn't really a punk or rock and roll way do you think <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you're driving at i mean i think it's a funny thing because now a thing that's happened in the last kind of 10 years maybe slightly more but that definitely wasn't around when i was kids is there's a rise of uh, organizations like bim you know which is a music college and there's the acm and guildford and there's water bear down in brighton and there's these colleges that are teaching music and the music industry as a career path as a higher education thing and on balance and sensibly, I think that's a good thing. You know, I mean, the music business is an industry and I think it's good to try and train people to be part of it, much the same as any other industry. My only reservation about that is that, um, uh, and again, I know I'm going to sound like a teenager saying this, but there's a part of me 
that is really wedded to the fact that like nobody wanted me to do this nobody helped me do this and it was just kind of like this thing i really had to fight to do and it was very much like the concept of rebellions quite hard baked into my view of what i do for a living and um you know, there's a little part of me that kind of goes, well, nobody ever, you know, I never got to go to school for this. Um, you know, everybody should have to learn the hard way. And I don't actually think that's right. I think that teaching people how to kind of um, think about uh, the business side of what being a musician or being in the industry entails is a good thing. But yeah, it just, it slightly tweaks a little adolescent thing in me that. You mentioned about your parents and, and people not sort of believing in you in, in that stage in your career, but were there, was it a case of finding your own feet or were there any mentors that you looked up to in the industry that particularly helped you? Um, there's definitely been a lot of people who've given me help who I um, do my level best to be uh, respectful of and, and to mention, you know, um, uh, quite a good example. Um, Mark Clayden, who's a bass player in a band called Pitch Shifter, um, uh, when Million Dead were just a kind of a... a a DIY hardcore band playing squat shows and playing bars to like 50 people. He got a hold of a demo that we'd made and he invited us on tour with Pitch Shifter. And it was the first time I ever played to more than 100 people in one go. Um, and we were playing like 2,000 people a night for 10 days. And it was just this huge. Uh, thing in my music career and he just did that because he liked the music that we made he thought we were a good band and um i remain eternally grateful to him for doing that i think you know going forward um uh you know funeral for a friend took me in devon tour a lot um uh, in my solo career the levelers has taken me out billy bragg's taken me out um uh and you know the guys in biffy who are actually old friends kind of gave me a gave me a tour really early days when i needed a leg up so there's definitely been a lot of other bands who've kind of really helped me out um and uh, taught me a lot of things about how to move things forward how to present yourself on a bigger stage all that kind of thing amazing amazing so when i think about the music industry at the minute i was listening to you talk about the downsides of it and obviously it's widely documented that there are things like alcohol and specific problems like that yeah but obviously on the plus side that is the incredible impact that it allows you to make you can have impact at a wide scale you get these yeah you know these real diehard fans so what is your personal relationship like with the music industry um well that's a good question i mean the music industry as a whole um we, we live at a point in time i mean technology's been changing furiously um pretty much since i first started being part of the industry in a meaningful sense which is quite an odd thing you know i never quite existed in the pre-internet age uh, as far as being a professional musician musician goes and uh, you know obviously there was there's been napster and then itunes and now spotify and the, the business model is shifting all the time um and there's a lot of people who kind of um are in a hurry to announce that record labels are, are dinosaurs and they're dead and we don't need them anymore i'm not 100 percent sure that's yet completely true but it certainly feels like things are heading in that direction um uh you know, I mean, to a degree, like the actual kind of business side of things, um, I try my best to distinguish between music and business or music and industry. You know what I mean? Like the, the reason I do this, the reason I'm so lucky to do this, the thing that drives me is the artistic side of it. And that can be um, fenced off mentally from the business side of things business side of things is necessary evil that's how i pay my rent you know um it's how i get to communicate with a lot of people which is something i want to do um and and i and i do my best to kind of 
to work hard and work well and work smart and all that kind of thing. But I try and draw a line between all of that kind of consideration and the business of writing songs and playing shows because that's my art, which I try and kind of keep sacrosanct. When I think about your industry and I think about passions and, and careers and I think about how important it is to be immersed especially in, in music. I have um, a friend in uh, an American punk ska band called Less Than Jake. And mm. he always talks about the fact that what keeps him going in his industry is that if he wasn't the one on the stage, he would be one of the kids in the crowd in those types yeah. of shows. Is that important yeah. to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we've used the word fan at various points in our chat so far, and it's a word that I feel slightly uncomfortable about generally because there's a certain kind of whiff of um, Marie Antoinette about the word fan to me. Do you know what I mean? I think that um, it, the, a world in which you kind of regard the people who make music and the people who listen to music as being separate castes or separate classes in some way is not one that I'm particularly interested in being part of. Um, and, and this is a thing that goes back as I mentioned earlier to my days in the kind of UK hardcore punk scene is that what was so cool about it was that um, all the bands were people who were part of the scene. And I remember the first hardcore show I went to, it blew my mind. I'd been to kind of bigger rock shows before and it blew my mind because when the first band who played finished, they just put their gear down, jumped over the front of the stage and stood in the front row. And then the next band jumped out of the front row and picked up the instruments and started playing. And it was such a kind of visceral um, vivid demonstration of the fact that this was a community of people who are communicating with each other and when you're on stage that's your go and that's fine and people can listen to you but as soon as it's not your go you get back in the crowd and you're one of everybody else and that very much drives how I think about my career today yeah um, one of the things commonly associated with you is the meaning that your music carries in that way and, and do you feel as if documenting your personal experiences through music has led you to being even more relatable to your audience uh that's a difficult question and it's one that i feel like i need to i psychologically and artistically that i need to slightly duck and i'm going to try and explain that answer uh just you know you mentioned earlier about kind of like being able to communicate people and sort of um give out send out messages and whatever else but once you've got an audience and that that's true but i think that if you wrote music with that in mind you'd go nuts and or start sounding very very plastic very quickly you know when i started out i just wrote songs that that felt good to me playing them on guitar in my bedroom or whatever. And I try and maintain that. I think that if you start kind of thinking about your writing as in like, I've got a message for the kids, then like you turn into David Lee Roth very quickly. Um, and you know, that's not really for me. Um, I, I, I hope that once I finish writing a song that people find it relatable and that they can find something in it. That's great. That's first of all, that's very validating for your art. And secondly, it means that people will come to shows and I can have a living and all the rest of it. But when I'm in the quietness of the studio or in a writing room or whatever, I have to work very hard to just, um, you know, to just let the songs be whatever they want to be and, and, and communicate, you know, make them integral in their own level. You know, I don't want to be sitting there thinking, wondering, essentially wondering what anyone else is going to think about what I'm doing. That doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. It should just matter what I think and what the art is like. A major thing which we have found through our research is that you've been very inspirational in the sense that you've talked and you've talked so openly about your mental health i saw an interview mm. in which you did i believe it was with bbc breakfast where you talked about your experiences with cbt cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy yeah yeah 
And I read specific comments on things like Reddit and things, which said that just you talking about that inspired them to look at themselves. So what was your experiences like specifically with CBT? How did it help you? And is it something you'd recommend? Well, I think, uh, well, okay, let's tackle that in order. I mean, my experiences was I was in a, um, I've I've always had issues with um, uh, self-esteem, should we say self, hatred that kind of thing and over the years that translated into a reasonably fierce substance abuse problem um and it was very kind of self-destructive and i was in an extremely um unstable and unhappy place and um the specific story for me was that i was fortunate enough to kind of find myself in a relationship with somebody who was clearly excellent and who i clearly needed to sort myself out in order to make the relationship work and that gave me the spur that i needed to sort my own shit out but then of course you know as they say and it is true you have to fix yourself for yourself first of all before you move on to fixing yourself for other people um but so then you know after kind of investigating my options and and looking at kind of like various different types of therapy and rehab and all that kind of thing um uh, i ended up trying out CBT and it worked for me. I think it's important to say that everybody's route to kind of um, therapy and to, towards mental wellness is different, you know, and for some people it can be different types of therapy. Some people medication works, some people it doesn't, you know, it's there, there are different um, approaches to it and, and you have to kind of find the one that works for you, I guess. But certainly like, I think one of the things for me was that I was very resistant to the idea of therapy full stop you know, um, it's not a thing that my family's into. Um, and, uh, I, um, you know, I grew up kind of in that kind of Henry Rollins world of like, you know, suck it up and tough it out and all that kind of thing. So it took me a long time to even kind of countenance the idea of going for therapy at all. Um, CBT was very, um, it was very smart, I guess is what I want to say. You know, it was very quickly, it became apparent to me that this was a, an integral and an intelligent approach. And that made a lot of difference to me. What were some of the key takeaways which you've had from CBT? I think the main thing I say, and I, and if you'll forgive me for almost quoting myself, I did sort of try and put this into a song. Um, it's about one of the great things that CBT does is it looks at a problem or a problematic situation. It breaks it down into smaller steps um, so that you can make the small changes that add up to a big change. Because for me and for so many other people, if you have a, a, a massive kind of screwed up situation in your life you can look at it and it can just be too enormous to do anything about and so you just give up you know and just go ah well you know there's no way i can beat that there's no way i can change this and cbt you know it's behavioral so it broke things down into the very very small specifics of how i was acting in certain situations and how you know why i would do this rather than that why i'd make a bad decision rather than a good decision and in in really kind of like breaking things down that's made a big difference to the way that i kind of engage with the world I love the fact that you've uh, mentioned that because, well, because that was the next question I had written down. <laughs> um, obviously, we were looking at some of your songs and, and little changes and, and it just jumped out at us. And, and it begs the question, you know, how much of a difference can little changes make to our everyday lives that we don't realize? Well, I mean, I think this is the thing. I think the big changes are made up of little changes. Uh, that's a kind of... Um uh perhaps a, a slightly soundbitey way of saying things do you know what i mean but it is true do you know what i mean and i think that song the song for me is both about my own kind of mental health but it's also about politics as well just in the sense that like you know i think we can all agree that we're in a very difficult fractious time in our political discourse in certainly in the uk uh, and in america as well and, and most of kind of like the west if not the world full stop and 
again, you can sit there and be like, well, how on earth do, do I do anything about this? What change can I do? And all the rest of it. But, um, you know, if you make small changes, like just try and be more forgiving, more considerate, try and see other people's point of view, that kind of thing, that can be a small step towards actually kind of engaging in more meaningful discussions, which hopefully might break down some of the vitriol and hatred that's infesting our politics. So um, I do think that, that it's certainly if you can make a big change straight away, then good for you. Go for it. Knock it, knock it out of the park. But if you can't, then start with the small ones. And, and while we're on that album, I mean, one of the key themes around your work is this idea of kindness. And what was it specifically around this idea of kindness that compelled you to write about it? And as a society, is there an issue which we suffer with? Yeah, well, I think my kind of grand theory about this is that social media is to blame. And I think and I think that's that's not a particularly original thought on my part. But just, you know, we do live in a society in which kind of the problem with social media and specifically with Twitter is that the the um, the reward system of Twitter is based around attention, not around learning or intelligence. So people don't go onto Twitter to learn new things. They go on there to be noticed. And that's a terrible metric for a conversation because it means that the more outrageous you are, the more outraged you are, the more likes and retweets you're going to get. And it becomes this kind of like hate factory and this sort of like vicious circle of, of abuse and outrage and ad hominem attacks and all this kind of thing. And I do think it's a major problem. And, you know, this might make me old fashioned, but I was sort of raised to believe that like, if you can't inhabit the uh, mindset and the argument of the person that you're arguing against, then you can't win the argument. Do you know what I mean? You have to be able to, inhabit their worldview um and, I, and everybody seems to have forgotten that um uh so that was a big thing i was thinking about the other thing was that there's a poem by clive james who's one of my favorite writers and uh he's looking but he's terminally ill which is very sad and he's looking back at his life and he says i should have been more kind it is my fate to find this out but find it out too late and it really blew me away when i read that because if somebody of that kind of emotional intelligence and cultural and intellectual stature can look back over a whole life and say that the one thought he has is that he should have been kinder to people then if that's if that's what he has to say that's good advice for me it's good advice for everybody do you know what i mean he's a smart cookie so i really started thinking about that and certainly you know the 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 regrets that i have and they're legion um but most of them revolve around the times when i've been inconsiderate or been unkind to the people around me and not you know tried to um understand other people's points of view and all that kind of thing so it seemed like a, a point worth making in an album length yeah that's that's such a beautiful poem and i love how you have brought this issue and i also really appreciate your stance on social media so what specific ways would you like to see adopted more in this sense of kindness like what could we do more that would <coughs> just really go along with this idea is it like a day-to-day -day thing is it leaving thank you notes checking on people what, what would you recommend <laughs> I mean, that's a difficult question. I mean, quite what's going to happen in terms of our society broadly, as far as social media goes, I don't know. I do. This might be me being an incorrigible optimist, which I'm often accused of being. I do get the feeling that Twitter exhaustion is a bit of a thing. And I think more so now than even like three years ago, most people... If you tell them that there's been a kerfuffle on Twitter, most people just kind of roll their eyes and they're just like, really, who cares? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, I think people are starting to understand that it's not a particularly sensible or adult way of conducting a conversation. Um, 
I mean, I think that the main thing for me is just trying to start conversations with people who disagree with you, um, but do so for good faith reasons, and then trying to listen to what they have to say. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them, and maybe the com- the upshot of it is that you have an argument and you try and persuade them out of their position. But very, very few people in the world wake up in the morning and think to themselves, this morning I'm going to be the bad guy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> most Most people think that the ideas they're putting forward and the ideas they have about how the world should be organized are are virtuous, you know, and obviously we disagree. And this is the most basic entry level point about politics anyway. But like, you know, I mean, just try and find somebody who is on the other side of the argument for you, whether it's somebody who is in favor of Brexit or somebody who is in favor of like guns in the US or whatever, because these people aren't waking up and thinking I'm going to be an asshole today. They've got their reasons. And you might think that they're arguments are incorrect you might think that their premises are wrong or that they're missing some of the information but at the very least you can listen to them and try and see where they're coming from because if nothing else you're never going to talk them out of where they are unless you actually listen to them and then talk to them like human beings so so true and if you just take a back step here and just delve into your career specifically something that really caught my eye we were following along with you a tour on instagram and I think it was either yesterday or the day before you posted this beautiful picture of your wife. She was wearing a wedding dress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you said that you were, I think, so sad to be missing her and her birthday. So yeah. I, I feel specifically with the work which you do, Frank, and I suppose you could say in quite a lot of fields, if not most, that to reach a really high level, then it takes a load of sacrifice. You know, I mean, you even mentioned before that you decided that CBT was a thing which, you know, your wife was, was a, you know, played a major part in there. Yeah. So just how many sacrifices have you made to get to this stage of your, your career? Well, I mean, the first thing I say is that I'm wary of using the word sacrifice too easily simply because no one is making me do this. Do you know what I mean? It's like this is a this is a path through life that I've chosen voluntarily. And if it was too terrible, I could just stop. It's like there are people who make uh, real sacrifice or experience real hardships involuntarily. And I think that that's a slightly different thing. And I don't want to put myself in that category. Having said all that, I mean, it's funny. I've been touring since I was 16 years old. So on some levels, um, uh, the the era in which any of this constituted a meaningful sacrifice to me is kind of long in the past in the sense that like, this is my life. It's been my life for the vast majority of, of my adulthood. And all my sort of friends and family and indeed my wife understand that this is who I am and this is what I do. Um, so you know, I, there's not that many people who are kind of like surprised these days when I'm on tour all the time, let's say that. Um, having said that, like, I mean, you know, I am bummed out to be missing my wife's birthday. The first one after we got married, I don't feel great about that. But, you know, um, it's it's October. It's prime touring season. Um, uh, I've got to do what I've got to do to make my living, you know. So and and we've got our ways and means of uh, of, of making that up to each other as and when we need to do that. Um uh, but, you know, I mean, that's the main thing is being socially dislocated. It can be very difficult to have normal friendships and relationships. And the, there's, a, there's a real social intensity to being on tour. You know, me and the guys in my band and crew, we've all been together for like a decade. Um, and we have this incredibly intense relationship with each other when we're on the road, um, which is quite difficult to explain to other people because it's not quite family, but it's not quite friendship. Either. It's, a, it's a weird thing. Um so, but like I say, it's, this is the way I've built my life. So, while, whilst I do miss a lot of weddings and birthdays and funerals and stag do's and everything else, um, uh, that is kind of the deal I signed up for. Yeah. So, when you miss those things, you do. Is there a case of you don't feel sorry for yourself because this is the life that you have chosen? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel bad in terms of letting down people on a social level to the extent that I do that. But I, I try not to feel sorry for myself in life generally, if I can, because I think that um, in many ways I live a very fortunate life. So uh, I try I try to keep that in mind. What I find amazing is, I mean, when we were diving through internet articles and you know what the internet can be like, and I know you won't mind me <laughs> saying this, you've come under uh, quite a bit of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. At times, um, something sure. that we find quite remarkable. I mean, I, I read one piece in which you stated you were getting around a hundred death threats per day. But that was a short period of time, but it was true for, yeah. for a brief period of time. Yeah. But you never gave up through those periods, and and you continued to to push and keep creating and 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 push on with your music in situations which really could have and probably would have broken a lot of people. So, the question I pose to you is. In those times of, you know, those difficult situations, how yeah, do you yeah. find the courage to, to keep on showing up, knowing that there's so many people out there wishing you wouldn't? <laughs> well, I mean, the th- I mean, the first thing to say is that, like, I mean, it's as much as I'd love to sit here and be as bravado as I possibly could about it. It absolutely sucks getting kind of monstered on the Internet. It's really no fun at all. It's a big part of the reason the other side of the reason why I've essentially tried to abandon Twitter and social media, I certainly don't read Twitter and try my very best not to read comments on social media anymore because it's, it's terrible for my mental health. And it's really, really unpleasant when, when an awful, when a, when a mob of strangers is calling you every name under the sun for a short period of time. I don't, it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, I guess the thing is, you know, I'm very fortunate in my band and my crew to have a, a bunch of people around me who care about me. Um, and you know, I do also, you know, real life is much more real. That's a sort of obvious thing to say. But like, even when things were at their worst in some of the monsterings that I've had, it's usually when I'm on tour and then I go out on a stage every night and there'll be whatever it is, a couple of hundred, couple of thousand people who are connecting with what I'm doing in a way that's visibly meaningful to them. And that kind of gives me a degree of um, uh, confidence, a degree of kind of reassurance, you know, about what I'm doing. Um, and uh, also, I mean, on some level as well, I mean, I guess I can kind of get a bit bravado here. I mean, you know, I do what I do. I am who I am and I make no apology for it. And, and um, I try my best to, to doubt myself, to be, uh, to be open to new ideas, to be open to the idea that I'm wrong. I think that's absolutely vital for any serious intellectual is to consider the fact that you might be wrong at least five times a day, um, you know. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm confident in my good faith and in my intentions and in, in my desire to create meaningful art and to the extent that I ever engage in political activity to try and make the world a better place. Um, and that's what I'm doing. Are there any, have you ever like looked at like Twitter or someone sent you an article or a comment about you, which has just been so wrong that it's hysterical. Have there ever been any just crazy untrue rumors or anything like that? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's nonsense written about me most days on the internet. And, uh, well, again, so here's a funny thing, right? One of the things about being a, a more mainstream successful artist, whether or not I'm, I'm mainstream successful is debatable, but the thing about being an underground artist is it's actually, generally speaking, quite easy because by definition, when you're underground, the only people who really know about you are people who like you. Do you know what I mean? It's so, like, the, the amount of kind of, like, flack that you get when you are... Um, being successful in a kind of cult underground kind of way is limited. Once you start getting songs, let's say songs on the radio or like um, on TV or wherever it might be, um, your music gets exposed to a lot more people and obviously not everybody's going to like it or indeed like you. And so um, 
and at the beginning of the time of my career when I got successful enough for, for that to be the case I found it very difficult because up to that point I'd been used to being able to respond to every negative comment about me or if somebody said something that wasn't true about me I could correct it and it's kind of manageable and it's controllable because it's on a much smaller scale once it expands beyond that that you have to and this is a piece of advice I've been given by a lot of very smart people Simon from Biffy Clyro being the best example of that but you know you reach a point where you have to just let it go you can't micromanage every conversation about you that's happening in the world you know the problem with Twitter is it's a bit like having a microphone in every single conversation in every single pub in the entire world about you and it's just ridiculous you know there's no way you can manage that but yeah I mean people say dumb stuff about me all the time there have been times when people have said that I was a covert born-again Christian which I found quite entertaining um, not that I have an issue with born-again Christians per se but it's certainly not true of me um, yeah people have said odd things once upon a time somebody said that they thought that I was Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys uncle which um, to which I was just like well my response to that was how fucking old do you think I am uh, but um, but anyway so I mean there's silly stuff every day um, so in the position which you're in now what do you think of what do you think some of the mistakes are that people could be making that maybe they see you and they see where you're at now and they are looking to get there do you think that there are mistakes which young hungry creative people are making maybe at the start of their careers or say a few months in um that's an interesting question i mean i think that um uh i mean i i don't the, the short answer is i don't know but like i think that um for the most part because i've i i tend to try and present a holistic view of how I've got to where I've got and indeed I've got this bit of a rep as being a really hardworking artist whether it's deserved or not we can talk about later but like um, you know the, I, I think that people understand that this didn't just like land in my lap and, and whenever people ask for advice I'm always just like get out there and play as many shows as you possibly can and you know hone your craft in a live arena that's what I did and that worked for me um, I mean I guess there are, I got an email the other day from somebody who was just like I love your music how do I get to be famous and it's just kind of like well that's the wrong aim do you know what I mean like you shouldn't I mean if you, in my opinion if you're starting out on a music career with the aim of being famous I mean I guess if you want to go down the X Factor route or whatever then that's fine that's a slightly different thing but to me you shouldn't want to be famous you should want to be a worthwhile artist you know and then if you succeed in that then hopefully people find out about it and all the rest of it but the idea of kind of wake up in the morning and being like I want to be famous that strikes me as a bad move yeah this this reminds me because we are you know we're a podcast really for young hungry people for the entrepreneurs for the for the students that want to learn and grow and one of the the biggest issues the biggest things which people keep saying to us is we get these young hungry ambitious people and they all come to us and you know they say they've they've been working at it for a month or two months or six months but you know, as we keep telling them to do anything substantial, it's going to take time. I think you're a, a perfect example for this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, I think one of the things that I—it's I, a funny thing about kind of getting older. The rest of it. I mean, I've—I was chatting with a singer the other day who's a who's a friend actually, or friend of a friend, I should say. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but she was kind of feeling a bit depressed that things hadn't necessarily kicked off in the way she thought they would. And she's like 19. And, and it's difficult to explain to a 19-year-old, but it's just like, good Lord, there's time. Do you know what I mean? Like, fucking hell. Like, uh, you know, life life is a lot longer than, than being 19 years old. Um, but, I mean, I think that the people who are kind of driven and ambitious in the right way and who are talented in the right way 
tend to find their way to that understanding. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, maybe that's a facile thing to say, but like, you know, I do feel that people kind of um, figure it out eventually that you've got to knuckle down at some point. So through those difficult times, which undoubtedly you would have faced, but what was it that kept you coming back? Was it just the love of the music or did you just have a, a, a strong and compelling vision? What was it? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, as I was just saying earlier, I find it quite difficult to verbalize and answer that question. There's a funny thing. At the moment when I started playing solo shows out of Million Dead, at the time, I can remember feeling like I had a plan and all of my friends thought I was out of my mind. Uh, and now, looking back at it, all my friends look at it and think, oh, he must have had a plan. And I look back at it now and think I must have been out of my mind because... There was definitely a long period of time where, you know, Million Dead was medium successful in an underground kind of way. And on the last Million Dead play, tour, we were playing to like 500, 900 people a show. And my first solo tour, I was playing to, in some cases, like one or two people a show. You know, like it was it was a massive step backwards and like everyone laughed at me and thought it was ridiculous. And now I find it quite difficult to see what it was I was thinking back then. But at the time, I was just kind of driven. I guess I just had something to say. I just felt like a... It was worth my while continuing with it in some way. And, and I'm very glad I did, because here we are having this conversation. Amazing. Now, coming into the end of this interview, where we start to wrap things up, we have typically four questions that we ask every guest mm. that comes on the show. Um, mm-hmm. So it's nothing specific to yourself. Um, so the first question would be, and, well, you are an author yourself. You have your own book, and that book has undoubtedly impacted people's lives. Are there any books that you've read in your life that have impacted you? Uh, very much so. Um, quite a few, but if I'm going to pick one off the top of my head, uh, I've mentioned them already, but I'm going to pick Cultural Amnesia by Clive James. It's a sort of pricey of culture in the 20th century and of art and of what it means to be an artist, and it absolutely blew my mind the first time I read it, and I've read it more than once. Wow. In your own life, and growing up, and I'm sure that there will be, have there been any rules, societal norms, cultural expectations, which you have loved to have break to break? <laughs> um, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, go back to what I was saying about my mum and dad. I really wasn't supposed to be this in life. Do you know what I mean, I wasn't raised to be uh, a rock and roll singer, um, and in a way. One could make the argument, whether or not this is ridiculously over the hype in the situation or not, I don't know, but you could make the argument that my career represents one giant fuck you to certain social conventions <laughs> that I'm supposed to follow. Um, I'd be quite, I'm, I'm quite taken with that idea. I mean, that might be overstating the case a little bit, but um, that, that feels like a nice thing to say. So we always ask our guests that based on their lives, what they see in the world, it could be on their work that we are a show rooted in action taking. So based on what you see in the, you know, the current social climate or whatever, or maybe it could be about work and mastering your craft. Do you have a challenge for us and for our audience that's maybe one, two or three things, whatever, that we could start doing today? Make make friends with somebody who you completely disagree with on politics and try and understand the world from their point of view. I love that. Um, so the last question I have for you today, um, it's more of a scenario I'm about to pitch you. Uh, someone comes up to you and says, Frank, every person in the world is tuned in to the exact same frequency. Everybody's listening to the same frequency. You have the opportunity to broadcast one 
short but impactful message and every person on the planet is going to hear it. What is Frank Turner's message to the world? <laughs> uh, to try and do it briefly, and I'm going to, the second half of this is a Henry Rollins quote, so bear with me on that. But I say, you know, be kind to yourself, be kind to other people, and remember there's no such thing as killing time. Time is all that we have, and make the most of the time that you have. Wow, what an amazing message. Frank, where can our audience connect with you? And do you have any messages for us and our audience, some last closing uh, well, my, my message is thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's been a fascinating chat today. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I'm all over the internet, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of thing. Um, the main thing is I've got a website, my email address on my website. If people want to get in touch, they can do that. And I'm on tour all the time, so people can come to a show. Frank, this has just been such a pleasure. There's been so many fantastic insights. You know, we just can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, thank you so much for having me, man. It's been really fun.